2 Peter chapter 2 as we continue in our study uh, through 2 Peter. In chapter 1, Peter told us the prophetic word of God was trustworthy. He told us he had witnessed it. He saw it lived out. And now as we come to chapter 2, Peter's focus is going to shift. He's going to begin to warn his readers and even into today's culture. He's going to warn us about false teachers, false prophets, if you will. And these are people who will come into the church pretending to be Christians, pretending, looking even like pastors who will mishandle the word of God, but they'll do it for their own personal gain. They're trying to get something out of it. So let's just jump right into 2 Peter chapter 2, and Peter's going to reveal the methods, the motives, and the future judgments of these false teachers to us this morning as we cover the first 11 verses. Let me just read a few of them before we get started. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Let me begin by defining for you who or what a false prophet is. But first, let me say a prophet of God is someone who speaks forth the word of God. They're speaking forth the oracles of God. A false prophet of God is someone who appears as though they're speaking forth the word of God, but they're twisting it. Perhaps they're adding something to it. Perhaps they're taking something away. Perhaps they're only getting a part of it. They're not giving you the full counsel of God, just the part that they want you to hear. And they begin to take that part and they want to manipulate it to accomplish some other purpose than for what it was intended. Peter wants his readers to know there were false prophets among the people of old. They, they existed in the past, but he also says they existed in the present and they will exist in the future. There were always false prophets among the people. The nation Israel, in fact, was constantly being led astray by false prophets. Elijah had to contend with the prophets of Baal. And sometimes it's really easy to discern who the false prophets are because they're preaching, they're teaching, they're leading the people in a completely different direction, obviously towards a false god. But it was the Jewish false prophets who did the most damage. Why? Because they claimed they were speaking for God. We're prophets of God. We're speaking on behalf of God. They're the ones that did the damage. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel exposed their counterfeit ministry of many false prophets. But the people followed these false teachers anyways. Why would they do that? Why would the people reject the true prophet of God in exchange for a false teacher? What was it, what was it that they would want? Because the religion of the false prophets, it was easy. It was easy, it was comfortable, and yet it was popular. It's what everybody else was doing. They preached the message the people wanted to hear and not what God had said. It wasn't God's message, it was their message. The people wanted to be comforted with false words by false prophets, so they went to hear what they wanted to hear, not the word of the Lord. Yes, these types of prophets have always existed, but Peter warns they're not just part of the past, they'll be in the presence also. Even here in 2019, there are false prophets within Christianity. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there are people who are, who are taking the word of God and they're manipulating it, they're twisting it? I hope you see that. And please don't understand, I don't think that we at Calvary Chapel are the only church that is not a false church. I'm not saying that whatsoever. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to teach you is what Peter shows us, how to discern who these false prophets are. Just like back then, some false prophets promote completely different religions. They're easy to identify. They're obvious. Buddhism is obviously not Christianity. Islam is obviously not Christianity. But they're still drawing you to, in some way towards God or, toward, or towards something. If you were to sit through a church service, would you be able to discern a false teacher with a watered-down biblical message? Or would it just go right over top of your head? Would you be able to discern a true biblical message from one that's been watered down, from one that's been changed? Sometimes you might not even know what's wrong. You'll just know there's something off. I, I don't know if that's right. I, I don't know if that lines up with God's word. I'm not sure. Peter tells us false teachers, they'll secretly bring in, what did he call them? Destructive 
heresies. Even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Peter tells us their message will be false. They'll be false teachers. That's the obvious. But he also warns that it will be brought into the church secretly. It's going to sneak in. It's not going to come in obviously. Nobody will ever identify themselves as a false prophet. You will never see a pastor wearing a name tag that says, Hi, I'm pastor so-and-so. I'm a false prophet. I manipulate God's word. Every one of them will always say that they're teaching God's word. That's what we do here. You have to listen and say, are they really teaching God's word? Is that really what God's word says? That's why I want you guys to follow along in the Bible. I, I jokingly say, I want you to follow along because I, want, I want you to know that I'm not making it up. But the truth is, you have an obligation to make sure what I'm saying is what you're reading. And what you're reading is what you believe. Don't just take it for my, for, out of my mouth. Take it for what God's word says. In many cases, false prophets, false teachers... They don't even recognize, they don't even know they're being led by Satan and not by the Lord. And again, please don't miss this. I'm not, saying that, I'm not saying that every church besides us is a false prophet. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is sometimes someone can be under the pretense of being, speaking forth God's word, but they can be twisting it and manipulating it in a way where they're just, their motives are impure. They're trying to build a church. They're trying to draw somebody to themselves. It's not about teaching God's word. It's about keeping the people or getting the people there. We need to be looking and say, is this truly, are we truly being taught God's word? So how do we identify them? How do we know? What do they look like? Notice how they come into the church secretly. They come in secretly. Their, their doctrines, their messages are brought in secretly. Instead of coming into the church and openly declaring what they believe, they will appear to be Christians, just like you, just like I. They'll say most of the right things and they'll look like they belong. There's nothing unusual about them. There'll be wolves in sheep's clothing, as the Bible, the Bible declares. And you know how to identify a wolf, right, in a sheep's clothing? You know, you say, well, it looks like a sheep. How do I tell the difference? Look at what they eat. Look at their diet. Wolves eat sheep. What do sheep eat? Grass. They don't eat, they don't eat the wolf, the someone who will devour the sheep. He'll be trying to eat the other sheep. He'll be devouring the people. That, that's what a wolf in sheep's clothing looks like. Their message it's, comes in secretly. And when it says secretly, when it says it's brought in secretly, here's what it means. It means to secretly or to covertly bring alongside. So they're, they're not replacing something. They're bringing some doctrine alongside of the truth. They're, they're adding something to. They're taking one part away. They're placing it alongside of something. They do not throw out the truth immediately. They simply lay their false teachings alongside the truth. And they give the impression that they believe the fundamentals of the faith. They're putting it alongside. Before long, they remove the true doctrine and they leave their false doctrine in place. So they begin to, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that, but I also kind of believe this. And before long, the focus becomes on the false doctrine as the true doctrine begins to drift off. It's a bait and switch sort of thing. All along, they sought to push their doctrine within the church. Secondly, how do I determine if, it's false, if they're a false teacher? Listen to what they're teaching. Listen to what they're saying. Peter calls what they are teaching destructive heresies. Are they teaching, are they, are they exposing, are they sharing destructive heresies? Well, what exactly is a destructive heresy? The word heresy originally meant simply to make a choice. To make a choice, choose one side or the other. And then it came along and it began, it, it kind of evolved into meaning a choice is into a sect or a party. Like cho choose which group you want to be part of. Do you want to be part of this group or this sect or that group or that sect? So whenever a Christian says to another Christian, are you on my side or are you on the pastor? Choose which, wh whose side are you on? There's a, there's a division. There's a line being drawn. They want you to pick a side. That's a destructive heresy. That's how church splits happen. Do you know that? Someone has something different than the pastor. They believe something different. The board, whatever it is, they begin to draw people unto themselves. They say, I want you to pick a side. You have to choose. No, no, the only side I'm on is the side of Jesus Christ. I'm not here to follow a pastor. I'm not here to follow an elder or a deacon. I'm here to follow Jesus Christ. Don't ever follow me. Follow Jesus Christ. I might lead you astray unknowingly someday, but Christ will never let you down. He will never fail you. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I would never do it intentionally, but I'm also very human just like you are. If you're focused in following him, you will never be led astray. He always has your best interest at heart. If they are dividing, then they are forcing people to make a choice. They choose a side. Peter says in some cases, these false teachers, 
They'll go so far as to even denying the Lord who bought them and redefine God and the path to get to him. Maybe you've heard it said, we all worship the same God. Well, there's many ways to God. That's a false teaching, my friend. There are not many ways to God. There is one way to God. Jesus said it himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not me. That's Jesus' words. He's saying that. If there were other ways to God, then why would he have to endure the cross? It would be unnecessary. It would be a waste of his time. There'd be no purpose for it. We could just find some other way to the top of the mountain, so to speak, as you've seen that thing. But maybe you've seen that cartoon where God's on top and everyone has a different road up the mountain. No, there's not, a diff- there's not a different road. They don't lead you. In fact, every other way leads you away from God, no matter what they make you think. That's what Jesus said. Now, let me, let me just give you a point of clarification. Even good and godly Christians will disagree on the finer points of theology from time to time. You'll, you'll say, well, we have different denominations. We believe different things. Yes, that is true. The Baptists believe something different than maybe Calvary Chapel believes, and you might have Methodists, and you might have Presbyterian, and there's different things. But here's what you need to understand. Those are often finer points of theology. They're not dealing with salvation. All of the Protestant religions agree on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, and he is God the Son. He is the one and only Savior. If you deny the deity of Christ, if you deny the cross, then you are condemning yourself to an eternity in hell. When it comes to salvation, we should all be on the same page. Yes, we'll have differences about smaller things. It's it's not really worth the huge fights that have occurred over. But when it comes to this salvation, it's a big issue. Sometimes people want to add to that. The Church of Christ, for example, most of them, I I think all of them, most of them believe in what's called, called baptismal regeneration. A lot of times they're dropping their name. They're not even being called Church of Christ anymore. But if you dig deep, they will tell you to get saved, you have to be baptized. That's their doctrine. That's what they believe. But yet they're trying to say, no, no, we're just like all the other Christian church. No, you're not. There's a big difference. That's a a big point. If I have to get saved to be baptized, then it becomes a work of my own. I have to do something. You see, I believe that Jesus did all of the work on the cross. All I have to do is believe on that. I have to believe that he died for my sins. So the finer points, that's okay. Those, those little differences aren't bad. When it comes to salvation, that's where, the, that's where the line needs to be drawn in the sand. Notice Peter also, as he's warning about these false teachers, he tells us they will bring on themselves swift destruction. They're not going to be around forever. Oh, they'll be judged. Now, personally, I wish they would never be around at all. I wish they would be judged immediately. I wish they'd be wiped out, not left to mislead the people of God. However, I know that God is both just and long-suffering. And truthfully, I'm glad that he is, because that's what I want from him. I want his long-suffering. I want his grace. I know that God's timing is perfect. And Peter is just reiterating. He just says, I want you to know they're not going to get away with it forever, because sometimes it looks like they're really prospering. Sometimes it looks like they're really doing well for themselves. But here's the sad fact. Before they're destroyed, before that happens, they're going to take many people with them. Look there at verse 2. And many will follow their destructive ways. Many people will follow false teachers. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many people are going to follow. They may be popular. They may be successful. And please don't just say, well, if there's a big church, then it must be a false teacher. That is, just, that is not true. False teachers exist in big churches, in small churches, in medium-sized churches all over the place. But don't assume that just because a church is big and has a lot of ministries, because it looks like God's doing something great, that the teacher is a true prophet of God, a true speaking forth the word of God. He could be a false teacher. How do we know? Look at what he's teaching. Look at what Peter's telling us. God's work will always bear fruit, But be wise enough to know that Satan's work can also bear fruit that looks like God's. Satan's work can draw people in. Satan's work can be impressive. Satan's work can gather a crowd, if you will. It can give the image of bearing fruit. Well, how do I know the difference, Rob? Listen to what's being taught. Is God's word being taught? Or is it some other word? Is it some other doctrine? What what are they going through? I've always said... I can tell in the parking lot what's going to happen inside the church. I can look and see, are the people carrying their Bibles into the church? 
Or are they not? Are they leaving him at home, leaving it in the car? We don't, need, we don't use the Bible in my church. I've heard that before. We don't, well, you don't use the Bible. What do you use? Well, they just put it up on the screen. Yeah, but you can't take the screen with you. You're not going to find it at home. You're going you're to go, well, that, what was that thing that, that the pastor... Now, at least now you can stick... You have your Bible open to it. You can stick your finger in it, put your marker in it, stick your pen in it. We used to stick a church bulletin. Then you get a Bible full of church bulletins. got to clean it out one day. But now you can remember, this is where we're teaching. This is what we know. I'm going to remember that later. The easiest way to tell is a false teacher. Look at the lives of the people that are underneath of them. What do the lives of the people look like? Are they living holy and godly lives? Are their lives being changed? Are they living just like the rest of the world, only calling themselves Christians and attending a church? Sadly, I could probably, if you wanted me to afterwards, and I'm not going to do it here, I could give you the name of churches, not necessarily in our area, because I don't know too many of the church, other churches in our area, but I can give you churches of where I came from that are false teachers. I could list them for you. I can turn on the, I could, I could give you television programs that if you want to watch them, they are false teachers. All they want is your money, and they don't care how they get it. They're out there. But how do they draw the crowds of people? Why, why, why are so many people deceived? How, come, how can they mislead? All the, can all those people really be wrong? Yes, they can. In verse 3, Peter, Peter tells you their motive and he tells you one of their methods. Look there, verse 3. By covetousness. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. How are so many people misled? By covetousness. By whose covetousness? By both yours and theirs. You see, they understand that as human beings, there are certain things we covet in life. There's certain things we want. We want financial prosperity. We want good health. We want blessings. We want peace. We want happiness. We may even want a relationship or a family. And they will use their deceptive words to draw you to them with promises of these things. God has what you want. If you come to this church, if you follow me, all of this can be yours. Sounds like something Satan said. They only teach on Bible verses pertaining to the things that they want you to hear, that you want to hear. They want you to feel good and like them. They're not interested in teaching you what you need to hear. Well, then you might leave and not come back. Listen very carefully. I don't want, to give, I don't want God to give me what I want. I want God to give me what I need. When you come to church, it's, don't come to church because you want to hear what you want. It doesn't matter what you want. I, I need God to, God, what do I need to hear from you this morning? What is it that you need to speak to me this morning? They use your covetousness. It happens. Just how do we tell? Listen to their message. How long will it be before they start asking for money? How many times have you heard? How far into the message? Well, we're going to take the offering. And there's, not a, and there's nothing wrong with taking an offering. But then they're going to take a second offering. Then they're going to take a third offering. And they get done with the service and they count it in the back and that's not enough. So they're going to take a fourth offering at the end of service. It becomes all about the offering. And God, why are they doing that? We've got to build God's work. No. God has all the finances he needs to build his work. He needs God's people to give their money, but he'll move in your heart to do that. I don't need to do that. How many messages have you heard? How many churches have you walked into where it's all about the offering? I absolutely love it when people have been here three, four, five, six weeks, sometimes several months ago. Hey, how come you, I just realized you guys don't take an offering. You're right, it's in the back. If, if you're visiting, we don't want your money. If you want to give, it's in the back. It's between you and the Lord. He'll bless you for it. I believe that with all my heart. He's blessed me for giving of my, my finances. He'll bless you for it too. But that's not why we're here. We're here to bring glory to him and to teach, God, to teach God's word. Or sometimes, you know what other covetousness? It's, it's not only yours, it's, it's the covetousness of the pastor or the leader or the prophet. What does he want? Well, if he wants, sometimes he wants your money. Sometimes he wants, your, he wants the power. Sometimes he wants the recognition. It bugs me to no end when I hear a church service, let's give it up for pastor so-and-so. Who is he? He's just a guy. He's, he, don't, don't, let's give it up for the Lord who gave the pastor a message to speak to his people. He's no different than anybody else. He puts his pants on the same way we all do every morning. I, I'm not an, there's no angel singing in my bedroom when I wake up in the morning. I hate to tell you that if you thought that was the case, it doesn't happen. I'm just like you. I face the same temptations of you. There's nothing special about me. I, I hate when they elevate a guy. Take a look at a pastor's Facebook page. Take a look at his Twitter account. Who's he drawing attention to? 
A false teacher will always draw attention to himself. He wants the power. He wants to listen to my great quote. Listen to what I have to say today. Listen to me. Like me. How many likes do I have? How, much, how many people are, are, are following me? Whatever it is. It's, they're always drawing people to themselves. How long in the message before, before the story comes about how great they are? Let me tell you what I did. Let me tell you how great I am. Let me tell you how God used me. Let me tell you. And sometimes those are applicable, but when it's week after week after week about what I am, listen, don't make the mistake of following me. Follow the Lord. Always follow him. Is their message focused on Jesus Christ and the word of God? Is that the thing the church holds high or is it just a thing they do on the side? Oh, well, no, no, no. Our focus is children's ministry. That's, a, that's, what, that's what our church is focused on. We, we, we're focusing all around the children's ministry. We want to draw people in, in, in the children's ministry. So we're going to make the best children's ministry possible, and it's going to be all about the children, and we've got to get the children, and we'll get the children, and we'll get the parents, and that becomes the focus of the church. Listen, if the church will just simply teach God's word, God will bring all the people. Think of it this way. If we're all sheep and we're hungry, where do we go? To where the food is. We, we want to go to where the, where, the, where, the, where the food is, where we can grow physically and spiritually. That's what will happen. God will bring the people. He'll add to the church. Are God's people becoming more holy? Are the people in the church becoming more holy? Are they living a more holy life? Is the word of God changing them? Or do they walk out and go, that was a good message. That was a good message. That was pretty cool. I, I like that little story he told. No, stories are meant to enhance points that the scripture's teaching they're not meant to be the focus of a message well he's kind of funny i like that joke no that's supposed to help us understand something to learn something it's a personality thing that can come out but if the only thing you take away from a message is, oh he's funny if you walk out of here and go oh he's funny i, I failed as a pastor but if you walk out of here and go man i never saw that in god's word before i'm really challenged by that then i've succeeded as a pastor if you walk out of here and go, man, I, I really felt like God was speaking to me today. I felt like, the, wow, that, that's amazing. Then I've succeeded. I've taught you God's word. But if you walk out and go, I like that story. You know, that was kind of cool. He was had his feet in the sand and his flip-flops in Florida. I wish I could go to Florida. If that's all you take out of here, that, then, then I've failed. And, and either I've failed or you failed to listen, one of the two. Is their message focused on Jesus Christ and the word of God? Are people growing closer to the Lord? Are they becoming more holy? Or are they just worldly people going to church? You see, our lives should look different than the rest of the world. Your life at work should be different than everybody else. They should know there's something different about you. Not because you're blabbing Jesus, because you live differently. Because you don't speak the same way, because you don't have the same attitude. Yes, share Christ when you have the opportunity, but share him with your life more than with your mouth. Share him with the decisions you make. In all of this, Peter tells them and us about these false teachers. He says, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. False teachers will be judged. Do you know that scares me to death? Because I get up here and teach, and I always wonder, am I doing it right? Am I, am I, am I teaching God's word the way it's supposed to be taught? What if, what if I'm a false teacher and don't know it? And then I realize, you know what? As long as I stay in the boundaries of God's word, I've got nothing to worry about. As long as I'm teaching what he wrote, and I'm not inputting too much of my opinions, too much of my philosophy, too much of my beliefs. As long as, as long as I'm teaching what he wrote, I'm fine. I've got nothing to worry about. Perhaps that's why James said not many should desire to be teachers because they'll be held to a higher standard. They will be judged. And even though it seems they prosper in their big houses and their airplanes, their judgment is not idle. It's coming. By the fact that God allows them to continue He's actually pouring out his wrath on them at that very moment. Think about it. If he allows someone to continue as a false teacher, he, God may say, I'm going to use that message in somebody's life. But in the meantime, because he's a false teacher, my wrath is building up. It's more. It's going to condemn him even more. It's, going to, it's condemnation upon themselves. Their hearts are growing harder and harder and harder. The best thing would be, take them out. Stop them. But God says, I'm going to wait. Because... There's still time left. They might see the error of their ways. They might realize. They might repent. Yes, there were false teachers in the past. Yes, today there are false teachers. And I'm not going to give you a list of who I think are false teachers. You see, that would be too easy. I want you to study God's word. 
I want you to be able to turn on television sometime and sit in front of a show. Open up your Bible to what they're teaching. Most of the time you can't even keep up because their verses are all over the place. Open up your Bible and say, is that what God's word says? And then read the verse that they quote in context and say, is that what God's word is talking about? And find out, are they a false teacher? Are they truly teaching God's word? Or have they treated God's word like salt and pepper? And they just sprinkle it a little here, a little there, makes their message a little better. Or are they truly teaching what God says? Yes, there's false teachers. To help us see how God deals with the ungodly, with these false teachers, and with the righteous people, Peter's going to point to three specific examples in the Old Testament. He's going to talk about the angels, he's going to talk about the world, and he's going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Look with me in verse 4. Will God judge false teachers? Verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. First, Peter brings up the angels. Some fallen angels have been bound in chains of darkness and are waiting for a future judgment. Other fallen angels, they're active in the world today. We would call them demons. And when it comes to the sin of these angels, Peter could be talking about one of two events in history. One, where Satan and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven. That could be what he's talking about. The second one is the sins of the sons of God described in Genesis chapter 6. Listen with me as I read to you from Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read the first eight verses. And the sons of God, as he refers to them, many people believe he's speaking of fallen or demonic angels there. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God these are the fallen angels, saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them, but I love this but. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. While we can't be sure, it seems clear to me that at some point in the past, angelic beings had a period of choosing and testing when their future destiny would be determined. At some point, they were faced with an option, a choice. Some chose to stay with the Lord. Others chose to follow Satan. And even others who are now in chains or waiting some future judgment may have chosen to come to earth and interact as human beings. God did not spare these angels who sinned. So why would he spare anybody unrighteous or any false teacher? Look at verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the un- bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. The second example Peter gives, first he gives angels then he gives Noah. As we just read there in Genesis chapter 6, the world was a wicked place in Noah's day. And the intent of man's heart was, as it was described in scripture, continually evil. I wonder how long it takes for the thoughts of man's heart to be continually evil. You ever have evil thoughts? Are they continual? I hope not. How long would it take? Well, there was nine generations between Adam and Noah. Nine generations. Great, 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 great. I don't know, grandfather, something like that. Nine of them, nine generations there. But we also have what we seem to be, angels coming to earth to to build or to bring upon this wickedness. God judged the earth. God judged mankind. But notice, although the judgment of God was poured out, the righteous were saved. Noah and his family Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, a total of eight people who were found righteous, they were delivered from, or maybe you could say delivered through the judgment of God. God preserved mankind through the lineage of Noah. 
And then he turned his third example to Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 6. In turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an e- example, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And he delivered righteous lots, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. The third example Peter used is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were both very worldly cities. They were both very wicked cities. Sexual immorality was rampant. And for this, God turned them to ashes. Why? Why, God? In Genesis, it tells us because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great and because their sin was very grave. Peter says, he just told us, God wants to make them an example. He wants every other unrighteous city to look and go, wait a minute, if God would do that to them, God could do that to us. He wants to make them an example. When I began looking at this and I began reading it, my mind initially went to this. I wish the USA would get this. I wish our country would see this. Why why can't America see that our wickedness is growing, that we're getting more and more sin? Why why can't we see this? And it was only moments after I began to have that thought, the Lord seemed to knock on my heart and said, don't worry about the USA, worry about yourself. Why can't you see this, Rob? Why don't you, you see, I can't change our country. You know who I can change? Me. You can't change our country. We can't change our city but we can change ourselves. And if we're willing to look at this and go, wait a minute, is there wickedness in my life? Is there immorality in my life? Is there something that needs to change in my life? If I will change that in me, then God may use us to change the surroundings that we live in. But often we want to point our finger. The country needs this. What about you? What about me? Will we make those changes in our own life? But notice, even in their wickedness and rebellion, it says God saved, and what did he call him? Righteous Lot. Now, I use quotation marks about righteous Lot because if you're not familiar with Lot, if you don't know about his life, he wasn't very righteous on the outside. You see, what happened to Lot is Lot and Abraham, Abraham was Lot's uncle, they stood and they looked, and Abraham said, where do you want to go, Lot? If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And Lot gazed over towards the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, over towards those cities. He said, I want to go that way. Abraham said, fine, I'm going to go that way. And then as you follow Lot's life through the book of Genesis, you find that he moves closer and closer and closer till he's camped on the outskirts of the city. And then eventually, you know where you find Lot? Sitting in the city gates. He moved into the city. He moved in, right on into, right on into all of the immorality. I'm living in the midst of it. Yet God still looks at him and says... He's righteous. We would scratch our head at somebody like that. Go, I don't see that in your life. Lot was righteous in God's eyes, even though it may not have, even though it might have been hard for someone else to see his righteousness. Yes, he believed in God. But notice something else it says very clearly. Yet the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah tormented his righteous soul from day to day. Think about this for a minute. Here's Lot. He's a believer in God. He's, been, he's watched Abraham follow God. He's moved closer and closer and closer. Now he's living in the city of sin. He's living in sin city, if you want to say it. And we're told here in the scripture that the wickedness of, this, of these cities are tormenting his righteous soul from day to day. Day to day. He's living in it. How did he get there? He chose to live there. Lot's soul was tormented, but you know what the sad part is? He didn't do anything about it. He just let it go on and be tormented. He, he, just, he didn't do anything about it. He didn't separate himself. He didn't take his family and go, you know what, family? We're moving. We're moving to a new city. We're not, I'm not going to raise my kids in this city. I'm not going to let them come up around this. I'm, I'm going to separate ourselves from it. Lot was delivered because, because, of his righteous, because of his righteousness, but do you know in doing so, it cost him some children. It cost him some of his family. It cost him his wife. The scripture tells us when Lot and his wife and two daughters took off, what did his wife do? She looked back. And the idea is she longingly looked back and she turned to a pillar of salt. He was left with two daughters. 
that he tried to give away to the angels, if you remember correctly. Now, here, here's, the, here's the point that I want, to, I want to, you to understand. I know many Christians just like Lot. They're, they're righteous because they're belief in God. But their sin torments them day in and day out. They're fighting. They're struggling with their sin over and over again. They're tormented by their sin. They can't get past their sin. They can't do it. They're stuck. And sometimes that's not even something bad. Sometimes it's something good. They're, they're tormented by something. They can't get the peace that they need. What should they do? Separate themselves from it. Separate from it. Move. Go to a different city if you need to. Get a different job if you need to. Find new friends if you need to. Separate from your family if you have to. Don't get stuck in something that is, that is tormenting you day in and day out. But many times people don't want to hear that. They go, no, I'm just going to live this way. I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need to separate from... I'm tempted to list a whole bunch of sins here, but I'm not going to do it. What is it that gets you? What is it that, you're, that you hold on to? Time gets tough. I, I'm having a bad day. Where do you run? What is it that you, I, I, gotta go, I gotta go get this thing. What is it? It's tormenting me. I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. I feel like I'm stuck. I'm day in, day out. I need this thing. This lot. That's what he was doing. Yes, he was righteous, but he lived a life of torment. This is the picture of the Christian that's living a life in sin, that they will not separate themselves and become holy unto the Lord. They will not walk the way that they're supposed to walk. Is there sin in your life that is tormenting your soul every day? You know, I lived that for a while. For me, it was pornography. Many years ago, I struggled. I wanted to quit. I couldn't quit. It's the way I grew up. It's part of my life. I struggled back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But once I finally did, and I put it aside, I walked free. I didn't have to. Separated. Maybe you have to get rid of a phone or a computer or whatever it is that's causing it. Separate from it. Don't live in torment. Yes, you might be righteous. Yep, I'm a believer. But the torment continues. I don't want to do the things that I'm doing. I can't do the things that I want to do. I don't want the things that I do. Same thing Paul said in chapter 7, only, only he said, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you come to the place, you go, I can't separate myself, then you have diminished the power of the gospel to something you can and cannot do. The power of the gospel will set you free from anything and everything if you will let it. You have to make a good choice. You have to separate yourself, but it will set you free. I assure you it's been setting people free for how many generations now? We're still here learning it. We're still teaching about it. These, three, or these examples give us judgment. These examples of judgment teach us about the Lord. God judged the angels who sinned. Do you realize that means no one is too high to be judged by the Lord? No one. If God didn't let the angels get away with it, he's not going to let you or I get away with it. He judged the ancient world before the flood. That means God doesn't grade on a curve. Let me make sure, when I, when I was in school, when I was in college, I always liked the teachers that graded on a curve. You know why? I only had to be smarter than the guy next to me. As long as I was at the top 10%, I was good. Didn't matter what the grade was, but every once in a while you run across a teacher who said, I'm not great on the curve. The standard, it's here. And everybody fails in the whole class. No one can meet the standard. The teacher goes, too bad. You didn't study hard enough. You don't understand the information. You didn't make it. There was no curve. That's the way the Lord is. There's no curve. It's not, you can't look at the person next to you and go, well, I'm better than I used to be. I'm better than they are. At least I'm not like them. It doesn't matter that you're not like them. The standard is the standard. It's perfection. If you've achieved it, you're fine. Don't worry about it. If you're perfect and never sinned, you're absolutely fine. Don't worry. You're, you're on your way to heaven. But I also know that that's impossible in the body that we live in. There's only been one perfect, and it was Jesus Christ. And he did it under the power of the Holy Spirit. The ungodly have no reason to think they can escape God's judgment. Their coming judgment is certain. Even Jesus warned in Luke chapter 10, for those who reject the truth, and him, he was the truth, for those that reject Christ, he said it, it will be more tolerable in that day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those who reject him. More tolerable. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but 
I don't want to be on that end of it. Listen to how Peter contrasts the godly and the unjust or the ungodly. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Let me explain to you the difference between the godly and the unjust or the ungodly. The godly, those are people who believe on Jesus Christ. Those are people who have given their life to Christ. They're saved. They've repented of their sins. They accept the free gift of salvation. And they are now living for the Lord. Those are the godly. The unjust... Those are people who reject Christ. Those are people who say, I don't want anything to do with that. And there always comes in a question here. People always ask me, well, what about the people who've never heard about Christ? What about babies or, you know, Indians that lived on an island somewhere and never heard a thing? Listen, the book of Romans is very clear. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen through creation. It's amazing to me how an Indian who lives by himself can worship the sun, a created thing, but can't worship the creator. In other words, what God is saying, everybody is going to be held accountable to the certain amount of truth that's been revealed to them. So what happens if someone is, doesn't have a mental capacity to understand? God's just. He's not going to condemn someone to hell because they can't understand something. God's, you know, people say, what happens to a child? I, I fully believe in all my heart, all the children that, that pass away before an age of where they can become accountable, they're with the Lord. They're his children. He loves the little children. That would be unjust to create them and condemn them to hell. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be just at all. You could even call that would be completely unjust. But people always say, well, who is it? What is it? Everybody has some amount of truth by God that has been revealed to them. It's whether they choose to believe that truth or not. In whatever form it comes. For us living here in the United States of America, we have the Bible. We have Google. We have, we have amazing amounts of information poured on us. We have to sift through it and figure out what's true and what's not true. But here's the thing. What do you do with it? Because all of us fall into one category. Either we're just or we're unjust. Either we're righteous or we're unrighteous. The unjust are those who have rejected Christ. Or perhaps it's those who have said, you know what, I'm not going to make up my mind yet. I'm, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure yet. Well, then you're unjust because you haven't accepted the free gift of salvation. You've chosen not to accept. The Lord delivered Noah. The Lord delivered Lot's. We can take comfort in knowing the Lord knows how to deliver us from the temptation we face. For the just, for the righteous, for those that believe in God, the Lord will deliver you from the temptation that you face. You can take comfort in that. But he also knows how to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment, the scripture says. There's a day of judgment coming. We can trust in God's deliverance of the godly because it is just as certain as his judgment of the ungodly. The only question left is which side are you on? Are you just or are you unjust? Are you godly or are you ungodly? Are you righteous or are you unrighteous? As a believer in Jesus Christ, I will be delivered from the day of judgment. There is no appointment for me in my date book, in God's date book, for Rob Mohovich for future judgment. Not because I'm a good person. Not because I'm a pastor, not because I've said or done anything, because I have put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is the only reason. That's it. That's what makes someone just, is they've believed on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They've realized, I'm a sinner. I fall short. I failed. I need a Savior. I put my faith in Him. You immediately go from being unjust to being just. If you, this morning, are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you must know there is a day of judgment coming. It's on the calendar of God. It's in the future. When is it, Rob? I don't know. I know what the white Bible says about the white throne judgment. You'll be called back from the dead. You'll stand before the Lord based on your works. You have that option. You have that choice. But here's the other choice you have. You can cancel that appointment at any time. You can take it off. Well, how do I do that? I don't want that. Simply believing on Jesus Christ. You see, that's the choice that we get to make. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not a one-time event. You don't just go, well, I'm going to believe on Jesus while I'm 10, and that's it. No, every single day you put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Yes, you get saved the first time you believe, but then you continue walking with them. You continue growing. You continue, and we all grow at different, different rates. Some of us mature quickly. Some of us, some of us take a long time to mature. It's okay. My faith is in Jesus Christ. We can even be, have our faith in Jesus Christ like Lot and be struggling and living in an outward sign of sin where God says they're righteous because they believe in me. But man, they're tormented every day by their sin. What a terrible place to be. Peter tells us the unjust have been reserved under punishment for the day of judgment. But he says something interesting. He says, especially those who walk according to their flesh in the lust of uncleanness. <coughs> the word walk means to proceed along a road. It means to go on a journey. It speaks of the act of leading or ordering your life. These are people whose lives are built around the satisfaction of their flesh. My life is all about my flesh. Their journey in life is always to fulfill some aspect of their flesh. I got to fulfill my flesh. And that takes many different ways. It can be an eating disorder. It can be uh, a sexual thing. It can be, it, it can be a, sometimes it's, it's taking place in a gym where somebody, I, I want to look good. I got to make, make my flesh look good. It can be where my flesh is the very thing that's ordering my life. It's driving my life. He also says they'll despise authority. That means to look down upon, to disdain, to think nothing of authority. Boy, that's rampant in our culture today, isn't it? I would hate, most of you guys know I was a police officer. I would hate to be a police officer in today's culture. The, the respect for police and people of authority is diminishing rather rapidly in our culture. Children don't respect their parents' authority many times anymore. Grandchildren don't respect their grandparents' authority. It's, it's diminishing. But that's a symptom of someone who is following after the flesh. He also said it mean, you'll be presumptuous. It means to dare, not to dread or shun through fear. In other words, you'll be bold about what you're saying. You'll you're bear oneself bold. This is what I believe, and I don't care what anybody says. You'll be self-willed. That literally means self-pleasing. Self-willed means self-pleasing. It's not a good thing. It means the only thing I'm interested in is pleasing myself. The only thing my life exists is so I can be pleased. <coughs> the ungodly are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. And that word for dignitaries, it means glorious ones. They are arrogant people showing no respect for the glorious powers above. Even the angels who are greater in power and might don't do this, the scripture says. Certainly it translates in our the, the powers here on this earth and authority and all that kind of stuff, but ultimately he's saying there, he goes, it'll come to a point where they'll even speak evil of God, the glorious ones. They're going to speak evil of him. Do you know that you can tune into YouTube and hear people bash God, hear people bash Christians, hear people bash, bash Jesus, hear people make up all kinds of things? I don't suggest you do it, but it's there. These are the people that he's talking about. They will speak evil of dignitaries. So far in these first 11 verses, Peter's told us false teachers have always been around and even now they're among you. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Their tactics will include secretly bringing in destructive heresies to divide the people unto themselves. They're going to take a little bit of truth and a little bit of a lie and they're going to blend it together so you can't taste the difference. My wife does that with vegetables. I don't like vegetables. She makes spaghetti sauce. It's got spinach in it. She makes tacos. She puts carrot in it, carrots in it, chopped up real small. Why? So I don't know it. <coughs> so the kids don't know it. False teachers do the exact same thing. <coughs> Hopefully she's not watching. But she might be. Oh. They'll use deceptive words, but rest assured, if God judged the angels, the world, and Sodom and Gomorrah, he will judge them also. Finally, Peter told us, godly, told us the godly will be delivered out of temptation. Underline that in your Bible if you need to. But the ungodly or the unjust are reserved under punishment for the day of judgment. <coughs> if you are not a Christian this morning, you can change at any moment. You can know who the ungodly are by their lives to some degree, but even that is confused when you look at Lot's life. They'll walk according to their flesh, they'll despise authority, they'll be presumptuous, they'll be self-willed, and not afraid to speak evil about the Lord. 
The truth is this morning you're on either one side or the other. It's actually a rather clear line. There's no gray areas. It's not based on what you do with your life. It's not based on the choices you make. It's what do you do with Jesus Christ? Do you believe on him for salvation or do you reject him for some other doctrine? If you reject, then you are unrighteous and ungodly. He says you're living after your own flesh. But know this, at any moment, you can do a 180 degree turn. All you have to do is humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I recognize I'm a sinner. And the moment you do that, he will. He'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. He'll welcome you into the family of God and you'll become a child of God. You may have heard it said, aren't we all children of God? No, we're not. We're all creations of God, but we're not all children of God. Those who believe on Jesus Christ, we become children of God. Paul makes that very clear to us. Those who believe are children of God. If you reject Jesus, then you're unrighteous. You're living after your flesh. I would suggest that today be a day where you ask yourself, what side am I on? Am I righteous or am I unrighteous? If you're righteous, praise the Lord. If there's something to separate from, you go, I'm kind of living like Lot with this one then separate from it. You know, don't, don't struggle with this day in and day out. But if you're unrighteous, know that I have an opportunity here. There's a, there's, a, there's a decision being placed before me. I can either draw a line in the sand and say, from today forward, I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest if you've never done that, it's possible to attend church for years and never said, today is the day I'm giving my life to Christ from this day forever. He has all of it. I believe he died for my sins. All of it. That'll be the day your life changes forever. Because you say, today is it, Lord. You have it. I will follow you forever. I pray that today would be that day if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. And if you are ungodly and you want to be godly, it's real simple. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Wash me clean. I need a Savior. And I'll follow you forever. If you would just simply pray that prayer during the last song. Maybe you prayed it while I said it. That's fine. Congratulations. You've entered to the family of God. Now follow him every day. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, as we hear the warnings from Peter about false teachers, it raises the question, how could so many people be deceived? But yet we look at our culture and we see people, lots of people following all kinds of different things. Some not even having a form of Christianity, yet it's playing to some sort of need that we have in our life. Lord, may you stir in us a need for you. May nothing fill that hole. May we always be seeking after you, willing to evaluate ourselves, asking us, am I following my flesh today? Am I following the Lord? Lord, may you have your way in our life. If we don't know you, may this morning be the day that we give our life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.